This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Virginia only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 532 3500. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is not a regular player, this is not a pretty good quarterback. This is an all time great. Is he? A strange bird off the field. He's a little nuts, I think. Okay? That's his deal. Is he really weird? Yeah. You don't have to hang out with him. You just have to put on your Jet jersey, go to the stadium, and watch him do his thing, which is move the Jets down the field and into the end zone, which is something you have not had in years. Subscribe to the Mike Francesa podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Missanelli Podcast. And uh, this is a uh, interesting podcast because one of the great guests that we're ever going to have on this podcast is going to join us, Larry Brown, the former Sixer coach. And, of course, there was a documentary on last week about the 2000-2001 76ers called uh, the 76ers, everything but the chip. I hope a lot of people watched it. We're going to talk to Larry about it. Uh, one of the most exciting teams ever. Uh, and, of course, this podcast is brought to uh, you by the great people at Bet Rivers. Um, I took the heat on a bet. I took the heat on not taking the heat. I took Denver Nuggets in game two, and uh, all of a sudden uh, I got a slap in the face for that. But you can bet the NBA playoffs, get a lot of interesting parlays on the Bet Rivers app. Don't forget to download that. Uh, we are uh, recording this podcast on Tuesday. Uh, what is today? June sixth, Tuesday, June sixth, and uh, let's so let's start with the what we call the current, uh, just some current issues that are going on. Um, and you know, look, we're kind of in a lull period at this point. So we have the NBA finals going on that we're not involved in, and we don't really care that much about <laughs> with Denver and Miami. But the Phillies, well, I don't know. Are, are they coming alive? Here's the thing that I take out of uh, last night as they whack the Detroit Tigers. Trey Turner, Trey Turner, Trey Turner, Trey Turner. Yeah, I said it four times. Hit four hits and two bombs last night. And we've been waiting for this explosion to come along. I've been warning people, don't worry about the Trey Turners and the Bryce Harpers of the world, right? You don't have to worry about those guys. They're going to be there in the end. And it looks like Trey Turner has finally figured it out. He, he's making much better contact over the last week or so. Uh, and, and the Phillies romp uh, against the Tigers. So that, that means they've won a couple games in a row now. Uh, and uh, maybe it's an awakening for them. Um, this is supposed to be Kyle Schwarber's month. Uh, he's got a couple bombs already uh, in, in June. Castellanos is looking like he's going to be an all-star for crying out loud. I got to be honest, I didn't see that at all. Uh, JT is starting to hit again. And all of a sudden, they bring this guy into the picture who I mocked last week. His name is Drew Ellis, right? All of a sudden, he's hit, he starts to hit home runs. And I'm going, hey, we got another Greg Dobbs situation. This guy from nowhere comes in 
And oh, so he's going to play third base and first base. And, it, you know, with Boma out of the lineup, I, listen, I don't know what to think about the Phillies. Last week I was talking about maybe it's one of those years where you go, yeah, it's not going to happen. Who knows? That's why it's a long baseball season. That's why we're always on hold. But the most important thing is Trey Turner. And now it's up to the rotation to hold their own. It's up to the Taiwan Walkers and the fifth starters to uh, hold their own. Aaron Noel last night takes a no-hitter into the seventh and then throws a sloppy curveball up, which which that little Maton, I hate that little bastard. I really did. I hated him when he was a Philly. He's got that, like, I hate the face snark on him. But he bombed one and hit the second deck last night to break up the no-hitter. Uh, the Phillies, of course, win comfortably 8-3 uh, to three, uh, on the game. All right, so let's look at the NBA playoffs uh, and where we stand. Um, there's some NBA news that's coming out. Kyrie Irving, who uh, said the world was flat, uh, now is delusional enough to think that LeBron James will come to Dallas. <laughs> Kyrie, you never, you never fail to amaze me. He ain't coming to Dallas, all right? But... You're talking about the wrong thing. You should be talking about you going to L.A. If you put enough pressure on the Mavericks, they have no choice. If LeBron wants you out there, they'll find a way to get it done. He wants you. For some unknown reason, he wants to play with you. So uh, stick to that narrative because he ain't coming to Dallas. You are probably going to go to L.A., and that's my prediction. Uh, all right. Uh, the, um, the James Harden situation. You know, there are still 60 players that uh, have to make a decision or a team has to make a decision on by July 1st. And James Harden is one of them. I have no idea where this is going to go. Uh, and frankly, uh, I'll be curious to know what Larry Brown thinks about James Harden as we come up with our interview. Uh, I think the Sixers can proceed without him. Uh, and the reason I say that, and I understand that people say, well, who are you going to replace him with? I got it. But I got a guy I got put under contract for four years, a multi-year contract. And on a, when he's losing juice in his batteries, like what, what am I going to expect in a deal like that? He's not clearly not going to going to be a, a sustained player o- over those years. So what's the point? Like what what are you going to do? You're going to be saddled for four years with a guy that may give you half a year. He's not going to be the same player. So I, I think the Sixers uh, just need to move on from him and just figure it out from that point on. Now I'm going to say something about Embiid that I think is a little drastic. I saw a video of when Embiid first came into the league, and he was he was lithe and he was lean, and he was seven foot two, but with a different body. And I go, man, he he looks like like he looked like Giannis when he came into the league, a little beefier than Giannis. And I'm thinking, is it possible that they could try some kind of thirty pound weight loss? Would that affect Embiid that much? I don't think it would. I think it would make him a much better player if he came in not as bulky as he is. Now, I'm not saying he's overweight, and I know bodies change. My God, I was looking at Miguel Cabrera in the game last night. They showed the first game he played at Veterans Stadium. He had a home run. He looked like a rail, and now he's thick. I understand bodies change. But in Embiid's case, maybe a little leaner would make him a better player if he's going to be a perimeter player. Uh, he could still have a post presence at that size, but just lighter. And and maybe the weight load would, would be easier on his limbs. I don't know. Uh, uh, let me bring producer Darren in. Darren, is, is this an outlandish idea to think that 30 pounds lighter would be better for Embiid? No, it's not outlandish. You're not talking about a huge body transformation. 30 pounds on a guy his size is not – it's only going to help – his knees and his back. Worry about that every time he, t- he falls on the ground. So no, I don't think it's a huge transformation. 
All right, so that's the NB thing. Now, the other thing is, uh, are there any players the Sixers could acquire? There's a lot of names out there that player options or team options. And the two names caught my eye that have uh, player options. Um, one is Dante DiVincenzo. I think he'd be a good addition to the Sixers, to be honest, as a versatile guard off the bench. And the other, and I'm guaranteeing you this is going to happen, Andre Drum is going to be back with the Sixers as a backup center. They fulfill everybody's wish. Everybody loved Andre. Well, he's going to be available. He's miscast out there. He'd come here and be a perfect backup for Joel Embiid. So I think that might happen. So keep your uh, keep your eye on that. Let me move into the NHL playoffs, which I have not talked about once on this podcast because I haven't watched a game. Now, I'm, I'm not saying I don't watch a game because I hate hockey. I think the Stanley Cup playoffs are spectacular, spectacular action. I'm just not interested in it this year. All right? But I'm looking at... The two teams that are in the finals, it's the Florida Panthers and the Las Vegas Golden Knights. And I'm looking, and I, here's my reaction. Son of a bitch, how does a franchise like the Las Vegas Golden Knights get in the Stanley Cup picture so quickly when the, when the Flyers are suffering for 46 freaking years? How does that happen? It's unfair. The Las Vegas Golden Knights are one of the best teams in hockey. How are they able to build to that extent and the Flyers can't? Knowing that Las Vegas is in the Stanley Cup Finals pisses me off more that the Flyers aren't in it. All right, I believe that is going to be the current for today. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Our next guest on the Mike Missanelli Podcast, and it is certainly an honor to have him on the screen. Of course, uh, if you missed a documentary last week on NBA TV called the 2001 Sixers, everything but the chip. You missed a lot. It'll bring back a lot of memories, mostly good, some controversial. He, of course, one of the great NBA coaches of all time. For my money, the best coach that this city has ever seen. The great Larry Brown joins us. Hello, Larry. Hi, Mike. It's good to hear your voice. Good to see, hear you and see you. First of all, how are you feeling? How are you doing? What are you doing these days? Uh, t- tell the Philadelphia people what you're up to. Well, I'm with family. Doesn't get much better than that. You know, I, I've been in Charlotte. I have six grandkids there. Three of them are going to Chapel Hill. Uh, got some of my ex-players in town, so I get to watch their sons play. Get to smell the gym. And I'm bored to death, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you love the, the smell of the gym, and, and I was curious to know, uh, like, leaving your last job where you were an assistant at Penny, uh, what was the reason for that? Had you just had enough? Had you, you just wanted to scale back? Uh, uh, and do you miss being in the gym? I had some back issues, um, and it was hard, you know, to do the things I wanted to do to, you know, support Penny. And so I left after Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, trying to get healthy and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I, uh, I'm anxious to share what I was taught. Um, and I want to help kids. I want to help coaches. So I'm going to figure something out, Mike. Well, I, listen, it's in your blood. So uh, God bless you. And I hope you continue for the rest of eternity. So um, did you watch the documentary? And if so, what were your impressions? No, I didn't watch it. Uh, a lot of the um, questions were real personal and emotional for me. And, I, you know, I trusted the people that were doing it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. But I was a little nervous because I wanted to make sure. I always try to answer questions truthfully. And, 
you know, sometimes people get a little squirrely about what you say, but uh, so many people have texted me and have gotten to watch it and seem very positive. You know, so yeah, I I got to say it brought back some some tremendous memories. Of course, me being in the sports media business, there was never uh, a more uh, exciting and and yet complicated and interesting time as to when you were the coaches Philadelphia seventy sixers, and that was all brought out. So let's try to go back on it because I'm just curious to know years later when when you look at it, uh, you, you come to Philadelphia. And, and there's this kid named Iverson. Now, he had one rookie of the year. Uh, they didn't win many games. They lost 60 games, I believe, that, that rookie year. And you come in, and um, I'm assuming that this guy was a different type of player than you had ever encountered in your long and illustrious coaching career. Did you feel that right away? Oh, yeah. The second he got out of a limo with David Falk when we met face-to-face, um, you know, I knew I was dealing with somebody that I had never encountered before. Um, and that's a good thing. You know, I think challenges when you coach makes you better. Uh, but uh, I didn't realize the extent of the character I was dealing with till I went to a summer league game at Temple. You know, Sunny Hill had an all-star game. I think it was our rookie camp against you know, a lot of local guys, the pace was, place was packed. The game had already started, and then all of a sudden, Allen walked in to play. And I remember tapping Billy King, and I said, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be an adventure. <laughs> okay, so, so here's the thing. You know, I, I look at the NBA now, and players just hold sway over everybody. But back then, it was still kind of new, uh, and, and and a coach like you still coached the way you wanted. You you needed to coach your way. You needed to have your players play the right way and and do the dutiful things that made them a teammate. And uh, so right away, you, you saw this guy wasn't going to buy into that. So what was your going to be your approach here? I don't know if he didn't was objecting to buy into it. He had his own idea how he should play. You know, he played a certain way his whole life, pretty successful. The challenge was me. Um, I'd never been with a kid quite like him. You know, I I was lucky enough to coach some really, really great players. Um, but he was unique. I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, he had his idea how to play. He wanted to be a point guard. My idea how to play was completely opposite of what he thought. Um, and the challenge was to figure out how we could get his, you know, him to play up to his ability. And we had to get players around him, you know, that would allow him to play the way he could play best. And we had to get a coach like me to understand this. There's certain things that might be counter <laughs> to what I think is the right way to play. But in order to let him, you know, play up to his capabilities, I had to sit there on the bench with a safety belt on sometimes. <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah, yeah, you did, and uh, and and of course, there's the great story you always tell that uh, every time you took him out of the game, which is commonplace in the NBA because you're you're looking at the the bigger prize coming down the road, and you do have to get guys out of the game and and give them a blow every now and then. And every time he came out, he mf'd you. And in this documentary, it points out that you kind of wanted to fight him at times. Well, the first time I did it, you know, I tried to be smart and take him out maybe at the 10 minute mark at the end of the first quarters so he'd get a long rest you know with it that that time out and then you know between quarters and then put him in shortly after the game second half second quarter started and let him play all the way through unless he was in foul trouble then that was always a fight because god forbid i took him out with fouls he didn't like that but um, he wanted to play 48 minutes every game and probably could have. You know, I don't think I've ever seen an athlete, you know, that with that ability to play that long at such a high level. But you had to be sensitive to it in my thinking. So then I'd, I'd hear him say that the first time, you know, you're not supposed to speak to a coach like that. And my coaches would pull me back and say, no, that's just Alan. Then I'd take him out just before the end of the third quarter, give him a long rest between, you know, the quarter and put him back in and let him finish the game. And uh, lo and behold, he did it to me again. And then after a while, you know, (laughs) that's just Alan. But uh, there was a couple of things, you know, he wanted the ball, and he thought if he had the ball, he could beat anybody, which is true. And my idea, which I try to tell him, if he got a rebound or he had a steal, he doesn't have to pass it to anybody, just make a play. And he would pass it. If somebody's open, he was as unselfish as anybody. But I said, Alan, if you have the ball and the defense is set, you're playing against five guys. So let me figure out a way we can get you the ball after we move the defense and we'll run every damn play for you. You don't have to worry about it. And after a while, I think he trusted us um, and he got people around him like Eric Snow and George Lynch and Aaron McKee and Larry Hughes at a time, Tyrone Hill, Matumbo, Theo. They all valued Allen. They respected what he could do. Unfortunately, a lot of people thought we ever we always had to bring in another scorer. You know, what, you know, we had Tim Thomas, who was a terrific player. Then we had um, um, Matt Harpring. Then we had Tony Kukoc. Then we had Keith Van Horn. You know, everybody kept saying, "Oh, you need another scorer, another scorer." And as good as those guys were, it was hard for them to play without. You know, because they had great ability in their own mind. The other guys, like Eric and Aaron, Theo, all of them, they might have complained a little bit. But deep down, they knew the best way for us to win was to let Allen be Allen. Yeah, and you you, you found the perfect blend by the time of 2000. But to get there, (laughs) there was a rocky road. Because when you you bring up... You know, a guy coming off the the court and and cursing you out, and how you had to get used to that. 
it was hard for you to get used to that. You you had your ideas of what a coach represented to a team, and he challenged it constantly. And he challenged it with the practice and showing up late and calling in sick or a shoot around or whatever it was. Um, that really is something you never got used to. Am I correct? No, I I never got used to it. But, uh, you know, you had a team that try to go out on the court every day and compete at the highest level. And fortunately, I had people around him that accepted that. They might not have liked it, but they accepted it and understood the frustration I had. But they helped Alan be Alan. And it took time. You know, I I don't know exactly when, Mike, but... Um, I had so many meetings with him. I could say anything to Alan Iverson privately. I could be as honest and direct with him, and he could be honest and direct with me when we were face to face. And it was great. It was really a, made me feel good that I could hear what he felt. And I thought he could hear what I was thinking, and maybe we could come to some agreement. But if it was in front of his team, or anybody else, he was really, really sensitive about that. He had so much pride and it was difficult for him to hear anything that he would kind of think might be negative. And coaching is not about being negative. It's about trying to make you better. It's about trying to point out the things that you do well and the things that you do better. And the frustration that I really had was I try to get him to understand if he would just come to practice, if he would just take care of himself the way he needed to, he might have been the greatest player ever. Yeah, I think your frustration was, in the, I think you felt frustrated that he, he wouldn't allow you to coach him to be the best player he could be. Because you, you got in coaching to make a difference and make people better. And it, it, it almost like he resisted or he looked at you trying to make him better as a negative instead of a positive early on. Early on. But I remember, you know, he won four scoring titles, I think, with us. So we might have got across to him a little. <laughs> but uh, but early, you know, early on was, was a challenge. Um, and finding the right people around him was a challenge. And me growing up, me learning that, hey, I have to, change. I have to be aware that this kid is different. And I don't think he means anything bad when he gets mad or angry at me. I know that deep down he cared about me. So that that made me be able to go home at night and feel better. But I had a meeting with him one day and I said, Alan, if a coach can coach the best player, not hard, but tell him what's right and wrong and not be afraid to point out things he needs to do better and and certainly things he's doing well. If I can be hard on him, then it's easy for me to coach everybody else. That's never going to be an issue. And, and I think in time we got better and better at it. Um, could I have done a better job with him? I'm, I'm sure I could have. Uh, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't, I guess, change anything, to be honest with you, Mike. He's, he's the most unique person I've ever coached, and I mean that in a good way. 
um, he's one of the greatest teammates ever. Because if you ask any of your, his players, they all loved him. And they all knew every night he's going to go out and do his very best. And that's, that's rare. And the other thing, I would sit there and he would do something in a game. And I'd turn around and look at my assistants and say, we didn't just see that shit. I mean, can you believe what that guy just did? I mean, it, it, was, it was unbelievable. And as time's gone on, I've become a better coach. I've learned to deal with people better. And I cherish the time I spent with him. And, I, you know, it's amazing. He's living in Ballantyne, which is right outside of Charlotte. So I think God's trying to push us together even more. It's an amazing story, it really is. We're talking to the great Larry Brown. So, Larry, let's let's go back because the the, the ninety nine two thousand season uh, ends with uh, you had enough, and uh, you you wanted no more of Allen Iverson, and you wanted to trade him. And the only thing that stopped it was Matt Geiger's trade kicker, if I, if I recall, and the whole thing. But you describe to me what your feelings were at that point. You thought trading him would would make this team a better team somehow, right? You know, Mike, I'm I'm not completely sure of that because I could probably you could probably talk to me any day during the five years I coached Allen and say I might want to have traded him. <laughs> well this thing was all worked the documentary says this was all worked out. The Detroit Pistons ran problems with players and and he was gone. And the and the only thing that prevented it was that Geiger wouldn't waive his trade kicker where he would have lost a million dollars. I'm sorry about that because I heard a lot of different stories about what really happened and what kept us from trading Allen. And other people are probably right. I'm probably wrong, you know. But I don't remember it as clearly as that. Um, all I remember is, you know, Allen had a press conference and I met him before a press conference and all he wanted to talk to me about was you can't trade me coach you got to give me your word you're not going to trade me and I remember he was supposed to show up and meet me at three o'clock you know he missed the exit meeting where he meets with the press and uh you know I had said in the press you know it's just hard because Alan doesn't do the things he needs to do that a leader needs to do on a basketball team in order for us to be really good. And he didn't show up for the exit meeting. And then I was supposed to meet him at three. I was in my office. He wasn't there at three. I got out. I walked down to my car and there he comes driving up and said, where are you going coach? We had a meeting. And I said, Alan, we have, we were supposed to meet at three. You're not there. So my time's as valuable as your time. So then he just started telling me, coach, you can't trade me. You got to tell me you're not going to trade me over and over again. I said, Alan, we're not going to trade you, but you just got to start doing the right thing. And then there was like a three hour difference between him meeting the press again and my conversation with him. And that's when that I thought when that famous crazy Practice, you're talking about practice, not a game, but practice when he said 26 times. That's where I'm confused. Yeah. I, uh, well, in any event, the trade doesn't happen. Uh, but that year, you also kind of reshaped the team because you made the trade. Larry, you trade Larry Hughes. You got Kukoc back in the deal. 
Um, and I know that was hard for you because you were a big Larry Hughes guy and it just didn't seem to work out with Alan. Wait, wait, Mike. Mike, that's not true. Um, Larry Hughes' people wanted him out of there. Okay. And we didn't want to lose him. You know, he had a hell of a rookie year. And, you know, Alan missed like 10 games one time and we played Eric, Aaron, and Larry Hughes and was 7-3 and three or 8-2. and two. And they were a perfect pair. The biggest thing, Larry came to me and said, you know, coach, I want to start. And I said, it doesn't matter who starts. You know, Alan's going to start. And, you know, we're going to start Eric. But you're going to have a big part because Aaron McKee can play more than one position. And so can you. But his people thought for his career, it'd be better for him to leave. And then, you know, getting Kukuk, it's a no-brainer. He was... I mean, that guy is great. Um, but uh, one of the most amazing things ever happened to me in coaching, early on when we had Tony, we're playing a game and about four times in a row, Allen goes down on the break and, you know, tries to score or make a play. And we call a timeout and Kuko comes running to the bench. Coach, 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 I open all four times. This guy never throw me the ball. You know, they call me the waiter because I serve everybody. All he has to do is throw me the ball. And I said, Tony, here's the deal. If he doesn't throw it to you the first time, I'd say, oh, I'm a little disappointed. If he doesn't throw me the second time, I'm a little pissed off, but maybe I'm going to figure out this guy might not throw me the ball. And by the third time, I'm going to say, I'm going to get every rebound and defend my ass off because that's the only way this team can win. And he goes, crazy American coach. <laughs> oh, that's a classic story. So in any event, after this whole, he's not traded, you come into the season and something magical happens because that team is like uh, gears that mesh together and you go 10 and 0 from the start and he's playing out of his mind. And, and we're looking at this team like, oh my God, this coach has figured it out to surround this guy with four exceptional role players who understand their role and look what's happening. Um, were you shocked at the start coming off of that last year, what you guys did? You know, I, I thought we had the pieces. Um, and when you have the pieces that allow your best player to be himself and he's so talented, you have a chance. Um, you know, the amazing thing, Matumbo obviously made a you know, come and made a huge difference. But you know, I'm going to challenge you on that a little later, bro. Go ahead with your thought because I was mad. I was angry at you for making that trade. But go, go, go ahead. We had so many quality people that respected Allen and allowed Allen to be Allen that it was so much easier to coach. Um, it's uh, we had depth. You know, even though they weren't. The, the household names, but we had role players that accepted their role and appreciated Alan. So I'm, I'm going to get on you, but Theo, Theo was the only guy that was a little upset with his role playing with Alan. Now it didn't affect him in terms of how he played, but he felt he could do more if he was allowed to. And, uh, and it also, Mike, he had a bad knee and that was the key to the trade. It wasn't so much 
you know, him not being a, a great piece because no better shot blocker in the league. That- yeah. Well, listen, he broke his wrist, and I could see why you would have had to have done that. But when I looked at your team that year, I said, my God, their defense is so great because Theo has the ability to hedge out and get back, which you weren't seeing in the NBA a lot. I think your defensive structure was fantastic with Theo, and I think it slowed down a little bit with Matumbo. But I could see where you were in that kind of a quandary with the whole thing. Uh, but in a documentary, Alan's talking about that year. You got off to such a magnificent start. And uh, and Alan uh, in the documentary says, yeah, but if every if everybody thinks that was all peaches and cream that, that year, they're crazy. And, and so where I'm leading to is this tumultuous meeting in December that Croce had to call where he gets you and he gets Alan in the room adjacent to your practice court. And and that thing happens where uh, all hell is ab- about to break loose. Give me your memories of that. I don't remember that. That was one of the things when they were questioning me, it kind of troubled me. I'm sure it happened. But, you know, it, if you and I are sitting down talking right now, Mike, I probably had 40 of those meetings. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, there wouldn't, I don't think a week went by where something like that didn't come up between Al and I. I guarantee you. Um, but, you know, I heard Pat's way of talking about it, and I don't remember. I, I would never say anything to a player in my mind that Pat said I was saying to Al. You know, I would never. I mean, you know, when all this stuff's coming out about the race issue now in sports and society. I've called so many people that I coached and asked them if I ever said things that were offensive to them. And if I did, you know, I feel really bad about it. But I, Well, listen, you're a coach. And the way Pat talks about it, and even Billy in the in the documentary, is that when you tried to discipline Allen, it took him back to places where uh, the ugly parts in his life where uh, people tried to discipline him like that. And namely when he spent that year in prison. And, and uh, that's what Pat described that, that, that he ex- tried to explain to you uh, that that's what took him back into a bad place and that you kind of had to adapt to that and learn from that. Shame on me, Mike, if I had a, not been sensitive to Alan and what he went through in his life. You know, I, I think every player I ever coached, I try to know all about him and to have a relationship with him off the court, you know, on the court's entirely different. But, um, when you coach in the NBA and you see all the things these guys have gone through in their lives, you gotta be sensitive to that. You got to know everything about your player. There's some people, you know, you could come up to and say virtually anything and they say, oh, I know coach loves me. And they don't listen to the words. You know, they know how you feel and how you care about them. But I would have hoped that during the time I coached Allen Iverson, I realized what he went through growing up, you know, and having to go to jail and what that must have been like. So that troubles me a little bit when somebody had 
is telling me four years later they're explaining to me how I should have been sensitive to that. Uh, Larry, let's uh, just walk through the playoffs uh, in that magical year because it was just uh, you beat the Pacers, who had eliminated uh, the Sixers in two consecutive years, but but you were ready for them this time. It was a great opening round, uh, and then you extend yourself with uh, with Toronto with the with the Vince Carter shot that does not go in, and then the Milwaukee series, which was also tough. By the time you got to the Lakers, you were a pretty beat up team. Well, which was you know, a shame. And you, you had to somehow piece that together for that Lakers series. When you look back at it, what are your thoughts about the condition your team was in? Oh, we, we were playing with mirrors. Um, Jermaine Jones was starting. Rajah Bell came from the, the developmental league. We got him late. He even got 17, I think, in a game against Milwaukee. Um, Geiger wouldn't play. Um, he played the game one. You know, Shaq had to come out and guard him and gave us a chance to, to win. Um, you know, I remember you'll get a kick out of this. After game one, you know, Geiger told me, you know, I might not be able to play. Coach, my knees bother me. So I got our video people to play um a clip of Kurt Gibson hitting a home run and limping around home plate and barely able to walk. And then I had Isaiah getting knocked out and a bad ankle bleeding and him playing. And I ended it with Willis Reed coming into the garden on one foot and playing. And, you know, after the thing, we're walking out and Geiger says, man, that was a motivational genius, coach. I can't believe somebody would you know, have smarts to do that. I said, Matt, are you going to be able to play? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember that. And I remember the fans being crazy that he wasn't playing that game because he needed them. Then I had to piss you off. Well, it hurt because the only way you could play the Lakers if you had 18 fouls in the middle. And they were letting Shaq kill Matumbo. Every time he crossed the lane, he, he'd knock him with an elbow. But you know, I thought if we had Geiger who could bring Shaq out, then you have Dikembe, and then if you need it, you have Todd McCullough. Um, but not having that and playing young Todd McCullough, major minutes, wasn't fair on that stage. Then we don't have George Lynch, who you needed a bunch of guys to be able to guard Kobe. We're playing Jermaine Jones as starting, and, you know, you can't guard Kobe unless you have Eric, Aaron, George Lynch, and anybody else, you know, Raja. So we had a chance to win game two. Um, we missed a bunch of free throws, but they were simply better. They were great. Yeah, they, they were. I, I was out in L.A. For, for both of those games. Uh, in, the, in the documentary, Billy talks about a guy who uh, threatened not to come to the game that he was uh, unhappy with his role. Um, do you remember that? Was, who was that? Was Ty, was that Tyrone Hill that was upset? Was there somebody upset on your team who, who, who said, oh, I might not even show up the next game? I don't know, but it wouldn't be surprised me if it was <laughs> Tyrone. You know, Tyrone, Tyrone was a different bird. He was always upset, but it never affected the way he played. I mean, he knew his role. Uh, might have bothered him, but he never, ever 
didn't accept the challenge. Um, I love him to death, but you know, he's almost like stinky. You know, if you give him vanilla ice cream and that's all you have, he'd always want chocolate. <laughs> but at the end of the day, he was happy he had ice cream. So, well, but I, I don't, I don't know. You know what? That's, that's why I didn't want to watch this. Yeah. This documentary, because I look at it from my point and I love that team. I can't go anywhere where people don't tell me their favorite team they ever watched play was the Sixers during that year. I, it's amazing. I can't go anywhere. People look at me in the airport. They don't know who the hell I am, but they, except they say, you coach Allen. Um, and when you talk about being a coach and having teams play up to their potential every night, you got to look at that team. That's probably going to be in the dictionary. Well, you're absolutely right about that. I, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I've covered sports a long time, and that, that team sticks out more, more than anybody. So uh, when you win game one, what was going through your head? I mean, that was an amazing game. He went off in that game. There's, of course, that corner shot that he makes, the overtime win. Um, did, at that point, did you think you can pull that off? Oh, you know, you know, it's like the Miami um, series against Denver. You know, when you beat Indiana, and then you beat Toronto, and then you beat Milwaukee, you don't go into a series thinking, well, why can't we win the next series? We've already shown that we're a pretty damn good team. We're resilient. We can win a game seven. You know, we can play at the highest level when the games mean the most. So you always have that in your back of your mind. Realistically, um, you know, we were a limited team without George and without Geiger. You know, we needed every piece to beat maybe. And, and Eric Snow was on one leg. at the Yeah. Time. And we needed everybody to play maybe against the best team that played in the league in a long, long time. So, you know, that was, that was really a challenge, but when we won game one and then we're playing in game two and I'm saying, we're going to win this game. You know, the only thing on my mind is let's get through this game and we're going to change this whole turn, you know, series. Yeah. And you were so close right in it to the end. Uh, Larry, um, let, let's just quickly, uh, I want I want your opinion of what the NBA is now because there's a lot of people that don't like to uh, kick out three game because uh, that's what it is now. Uh, as as an old school coach, what, what do you think of the NBA right now and the way it's played? Well, I don't like it. There's too many young players playing and they're not ready. Um, it's an equal opportunity league. Anybody can jack up a three. Um, I'm not opposed to shooting threes. You know, I, if, if I'm coaching Reggie Miller, every time he's open, I'm telling him to shoot a three. You know, but I'm old school. I think you win with defense, unselfish play, you know, and competitiveness. I see guys in this series picking, you know, an opponent up. You know, I see guys driving down the lane and nobody knocking them down. I see in my mind, if Allen played today, he'd score 50 um, without a problem, and he'd like me a hell of a lot more. Um, 
it's, you know, I admire the athleticism. I admire the ability of these guys. But if you think about it, um, when, when Damon, Draymond Green said, Clay Thompson, Seth Curry, and I are the three best players to ever play in the NBA. And I'm saying to myself, magic worthy Kareem. And I'm not counting the other guys they had on that team. Larry Bird, Parrish, and Mikhail, and you can put in Dennis Johnson and Bill Walton, any any other. You talk about, you know, Wilt and, you know, Casey Jones, um, Sam Jones, Bob Cousy, you know, Bill Russell. I don't know. You can go on and on and on. When you talk about three great players, every team had three great players. Every team had a shot blocker. Every team had a power forward that could protect the rim. At one time, Jimmy Butler was the tallest player on the court for Miami. You know, and then when Jokic, who is phenomenal, goes out of the game, Gordon is their center. Now think about that. You know, how are they going to guard Shaq? And then they'll say, well, how is Shaq going to guard them? Shaq will have them all out of the game in five minutes in foul trouble. You know, and I remember, you know, David Robinson, you know, Patrick Ewing, Shaq. I mean, you can go on and on. Every team had an unbelievable shot blocker and protector and low post scorer and a power forward that could do the, the same. And quality other people that were older. So I'm kind of for old school. I don't mind, you know, I grew up in the ABA. You know, we had a 30-second clock and still averaged 125 points a game because the game was open, and that's how I, I learned to coach. But I value defense, unselfish play, and toughness more than anything, and guys accepting their role. Larry, quickly on the Sixers, uh, let's talk about the big man, uh, Joel Embiid. Uh, MVP last year, but uh, a lot of people thought he came up small. Uh, when you look at his game, should he be more Shaq or should he be what, how they play him? I'm not in. I'm not at practice, Mike. You know, I I value Doc. I think he's a really good coach. Um, again, I have an idea how big should play. You know, everybody talks about analytics. I did analytics when I was 14 years old. You know, good shot, bad shot. Get to the free throw line as much as you can. Out rebound your opponent, don't turn the ball over, you know, and value getting stops. And, you know, to me, analytics are like a drunk uses a lamppost for support and not illumination. And, and, and to me, these guys that do analytics, they do it based on the things that they value. You know, everybody says you got to take the corner three because it's highest percentage shot. But they don't tell you who's shooting it, when it's coming up, and what happens if they miss. You know, so that's that's my understanding. Of it. But I look at Joel. Who the hell can stop him on the block? And if he's out shooting a three, who's on the board? And if you throw him the ball inside, he's a phenomenal passer. I remember... The biggest play in this series with Philly is when he threw the ball to Harden and he hit a three 
to win the game and you think they have a chance to win the series against Boston. He's unselfish. He creates double teams and he's a rim protector. The, the one thing I worry about Joel from time to time, I don't think he's ever been in the kind of shape that he needs to be in to play at the level he's capable of playing. All right, when you look at the Sixers, they're going through a transition now. There's a new coach, and uh, they've got a situation where the uh, where James Harden may or may not be there. I mean, who knows? Uh, uh, are you a, a Harden guy? Yeah, I think he's tried to sacrifice and do the right thing, um, make make everybody around him better. But I don't think that's his nature. I think he's an unbelievable scorer. And I think, you know, he maybe has to be on a team with like a D'Antoni that revolves around him. And the fact that he is such a threat to score, he'll make people better. But I think he can adapt. You know, I, I thought he tried to guard a lot better in the playoffs. Um, I remember when uh, we were trying to sign a Livingston as a free agent when I was in Charlotte. I went out to California and I worked with James and Livingston for about three days. And I loved every minute of it. He was really, you know, accepting coaching. He, he had enthusiasm and I thought he was unbelievably talented. So that's a multi-year deal now you have to sign him. You know, I've just turned it. If the Celtics sign Brown and Tatum, that's almost $120 million. And the cap's $132 million. How's that happening? I don't don't understand. I remember when I got, if I'm talking too much, shut me off. I remember when when I got the Philly job, Mr. Snyder, who is the greatest owner of all time, said, Larry, I'll do anything I can to get any player you need, but we can't go over the cap. He said, if you can do that, you got me 100%. Anything you need, I'll be there for you. So I remember one time Billy and I went up to the Comcast building, and we were going to try to sign Matt Geiger and Theo. And we went in. Uh, Ralph, you know, was there. Uh Comcast people, Ralph Roberts and Brian was there. And uh, Mr. Snyder, Billy and I sat down and uh, I said, Mr. Snyder, we need to re-sign Theo. He said, what's it going to take? And Billy said, I think it's going to be like a six-year deal, like $50 million. And then um, we said, we also got to sign Matt Geiger as a, you know, free agent. He said, what's it going to cost? And Billy said, I think $48 million. He said, well, we go over the cap by doing it. And we looked at each other and said, no, no way. We'll figure it out. We'll stay under the cap. And Miss Ralph Roberts said, I trust Larry. And Mr. Snyder said, well, go ahead and do it. And we went down on the elevator and I said to Billy, I said, Billy, can you just Figure this out. We just asked those people to spend $100 million and trust us. Can you believe that? He said, no, this is ridiculous. Three days later, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, 
they tried to buy NBC for like $54 billion. <laughs> so it was a drop in the bucket, basically. Uh, last question for you. This is absolute last. I know you're a big proponent of Jay Wright. I know you love him. I know you think he's a fantastic coach. And there's always this question in Philly. Why, why uh, wouldn't Jay be a good NBA coach? Why wouldn't he take a shot? And your conversations with him. Have you ever suggested to him that he could take that next step? And would he be willing to do it in your mind? Yeah, we've talked about it. You know, um, two years I wasn't coaching. I I lived, it, you know, right by Villanova. And I was probably at more practices at Villanova than Jay was because he had to go recruit once in a while. And he saved my life letting me sit there and watch. And he is... He's a better human being than he is a coach, and he might be the best coach coaching basketball today. Um, I know he'll never take another college job because he'd never be disloyal in his mind to Villanova. Um, he's coached with USA Basketball, so he has a relationship with NBA players, and know he knows, I think, how to deal with NBA players because they are different than college. You can say almost anything to a college kid because of the relationship you're allowed to establish with him and he knows he loves you. Because I've seen Jay say stuff to kids that my hair stood up and then two seconds later they're kissing on the lips because that's how much love and respect he had for him. So I've talked to him a, a lot about it. I, I just think right now he's really happy with being around his family. Because people don't know, you're not a basketball coach in college six months out of the year. You know, it's 12 months. It's recruiting. You know, it's doing speaking engagements. It's managing a staff. It's, it's so many other things other than just getting on the court and X's and O's. So you never have any time off. And if anybody... You know, when college does anything wrong, it's a reflection on you. So you got to be really, really sensitive about the kids you bring in and be there for them. But I think after a while, he's enjoying TV. He's enjoying being his, with his family. I wouldn't be surprised if the right job came up that he might do it. Wow. What would be the right job? How about right here in his hometown? Well, they got a great coach coming in. Yeah, they I, do. I think he's really good. And nothing would be better than being in Philly coaching the Sixers. But, you know, they did make a good choice. They lost a great coach. I just want Jay to be happy. But I also want him to be around kids and making our game better because he is special. Larry, this has been a pleasure. Uh, I can't tell you, and I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on. We really appreciate it. I, I miss you. And uh, continued uh, good health down there. Uh, stay healthy and uh, you know, stay in the game, okay? Yeah, well, you've always been wonderful to me, Mike. I can't, can't thank you enough. If I, if I screwed up on some of these questions, not really recalling, having total recall, I apologize. But No, you, you, you're, you're fantastic. And, and I got to say that one of the highlights of my career, and I think I've brought this stuff up to you before, and I covered college basketball for a lot of years, 
for the Philly Inquirer, and I and I covered your game against Oklahoma in '88 at the Kemper Arena. And I thought it was one of the most masterful jobs I'd ever seen, and uh, it's one of it's one of the game stories that I have framed that I wrote about that game. So uh, that was that was a, a just an unbelievable moment. Well, thanks so much, Mike. Look forward to seeing you. Take care. Bye now. It's the Mike Mussinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, thanks so much to Larry Brown for joining the show today. I, I tell you, I I love talking to Larry Brown. I, I had a, a, a I had a good relationship with him. But I would go like Adam when I in the heyday when I was of my sports talk radio days. And I, I remember one time uh, I was on him for something, and they were they're playing the the Utah Jazz. And uh, I said uh, my whole show was about how they're not beating the Jazz tonight. And there was a dynamic in it. They weren't playing well. The Jazz were, were going to exploit something. I forget what it was, but I said I'm 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 taking the Utah Jazz tonight. So the Sixers beat the Jazz, and Larry Brown comes into his press conference, and the first thing uh, they they said, well, what 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 are your thoughts uh, uh, about this game? And, and he said, yeah, well, the first thought I have is. Uh, that uh, uh, Mike Missinelli picked the Utah Jazz tonight, and I just wanted to throw that in his face. <laughs> it's the first thing he said in the press conference. I'm watching the press conference. I go, "Oh my God, look at that! He must be a hardcore listener of the show." But but anyway, he's great. I love talking to him. I love talking to him about basketball. I love. I've been, I've been a fan of his coaching acumen, and there was never anything more dynamic and interesting than when he was coaching Allen Iverson in the history of this town and me covering sports. It was fabulous. It went from the Lindros controversy to Allen Iverson, then to McNabb. Those were golden years for Sports Talk Radio. Yeah, those were the, those were the years that you and I were working together all the time. And that I say tell people all the time, you can't, you can't. That was the golden era of wild things in sports. It was a golden era. We went from Lindros to, to yeah. AI to McNabb. Uh, anyway, the podcast is thank the people, Bet Rivers, who bring us this podcast every week. Don't forget to download that Bet Rivers app. Make your bets very easy. Uh, anybody that take Victor Hovland for the Memorial Tournament this week? Ed, I, if he did, you're a better man than me because I, I didn't take him. Uh, also, uh, you can get in touch with me, Mike at MikeMiss.com. That's from my website, MikeMiss.com. Check out my website, MikeMiss.com. I uh, file a video blog every week, every Friday, a fresh new video blog. All you have to do is subscribe to it, and it'll come to you. And, of course, that's all you have to do with this podcast. Subscribe to it. It'll come to your inbox every week, and uh, it, it takes the, the heavy lifting uh, right out of it. Uh, okay. Uh, MikeMiss25 is how you get me on Twitter. And uh, don't forget, if you're down the Cape May Courthouse area, stop by Natalie Vineyards. I'm proud to be part owner. and We're producing some really good wines down there. And, uh, and also, um, I'm looking at my lawn right now. My lawn looks really good, Darren. And you know why? <laughs> because of my great friends at Natural Lawn. That's right. Natural Lawn uses natural materials. They don't use chemicals. So your dog can go out there, lick the paw. Nothing's going to happen. The wife can walk out with the garden. There's not any fungus on her shoes. Natural materials to help your lawn grow. And my lawn's fantastic. I got great curb appeal on my lawn. So thanks to the people natural lawn and i guess that's about it everybody have a great rest of the day we'll be back at you with another podcast on thursday thanks again to larry brown we hope you all enjoyed it have a good day everybody see ya it's the mike missanelli podcast on the bet rivers network